Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. I'm joined as usual by Terry Fakes. I'm Cole Fakes, and we are doing a book of the Bible overview, getting very close to all 66 books here. And so as many of you have been waiting for, we're covering the book of Numbers today. <laughs> this might be our most eagerly awaited book overview. Most requested book. Right. Definitely wasn't numbers, but in some ways it probably should be, you know, with a lot of these books, we've, we've gone over um, superlatives. I like to give these books superlatives in some of our overviews. And I would say uh-huh. numbers is the greatest misnomer of all books of the Bible. That is really well said. Uh, the name of this book really, it does refer to a couple of big events in the book. But honestly, if, if you just hear that name, it doesn't give you any idea of the action and what happens in this book. Well, it certainly doesn't incite people to want to read it. You right. see the book of Numbers and you really don't want to dive into that book. But if, if the book were called Stories instead, which is probably more accurate, people would really want to read it. And that's really what you get for most of the book of Numbers is stories about Israel in the wilderness. But I can't think of another book in the Bible that has a more misleading name probably than Numbers, other than maybe Revelation, which is true to its name, I think rightly right. interpreted. But for most people, I think when we read Revelation, most of us don't feel like that much has actually been revealed. Right. But outside of that, maybe <laughs> Numbers is the biggest misnomer. Probably so. I mean, I think probably the average accountant flocks to this book expecting something really exciting. And you do. You get some great uh, census and numbers and things like that. But the the Hebrew name of this book is different. And it really uh, characterizes what the book's actually about. Yeah, the Hebrew name for this book is in the first sentence. A lot of these books, if this is the case, in the wilderness or in the desert is the name of the book in uh, Hebrew, the Septuagint name is Numbers, and that's why we have the, the name Numbers, is is from the Greek translation of the text. But I would love to see it go back to the Hebrew name, but we'd have to change our Books of the Bible song. Well, we could then uh, republish and everybody would buy new Bibles. Yeah, so we had to get everybody that, new That Bibles. might be good for the Bible publishing industry. It would be. But, on, but here's my question for people that aren't as familiar with this book. Why... Why would you say you should read this book? I mean, other than being faithful to your read through the Bible in a year plan and checking off your readings, why would you approach this book with zeal instead of dread? Yeah, that's a good question to start with the book of Numbers is you're coming out of the book of Leviticus, which only has two narrative, two two long narrative moments in it. You get a lot of laws and provisions, ceremonial law, sacrifices, and all of a sudden you get into Numbers, and in some ways Numbers is life in Israel in the wilderness. So if you want to know what they were doing in the 40 years in the wilderness and what it was actually be to, what it was actually like to be an Israelite, this is a pretty close uh, book to what their life was like. The, the other thing is it shows you what it looked like in real life to play out a lot of the system that's mentioned in Leviticus. So what did it mean to actually do the sacrifices? What did it look like to actually right. live by God's commands or not live by God's commands, which is what a lot of the right. book of Numbers is about. So I would say the real life of Israel is one aspect. Uh, what do you think? Well, to me, it's a pivotal book. And we've talked about this before, but Numbers begins with the generation of Israelites who came out 
of Egypt. And the, and then one of the first things that happens is you have a census. You take a numbering of Israel coming out. And then the end of the book from chapter 26 on, you, you have another numbering, but now it's 40 years later. And you're numbering the generation that's about to go into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And so this book spans the generations. And this book tells you why there is a different generation going into the promised land. So numbers kind of straddles the coming out and the going in and explains the 40 years in between. Mm -hmm. If you want to know what's happening between the Exodus and the book of Joshua, the book of Numbers is really where you go. Deuteronomy has a couple of recap moments, but it's mostly speeches given by Moses. Mm -hmm. Leviticus has the Levitical code and the laws, but Numbers is what gets you the transition from leaving Sinai, which they do in chapter 9 and chapter 10, to arriving on the edge of the promised land, which they do in chapters 13 and 14. They turn around, they wander, and then they finally come back towards the promised land with a new generation of people. And so everything in between is mostly covered in this book and this book alone. There's some overlap with Exodus, but a lot of it's not in Exodus. So one thing that's interesting to me right up front, we mentioned that in chapter one, God commands Moses to take a census basically of all the fighting men, you know, 20 years and older, tribe by tribe, how many, you don't get a census of all the Israelites, but you get a census of all the the men of fighting age. And I think that's interesting that in chapter two, you see the total as you get to the end of the tribes and the total of the fighting men minus the Levites is 603,550. And I, I think that's interesting to know because now extrapolate from that how many total Israelites there were with children, women, et cetera, uh, men who are younger, men who are older, et cetera. But I just think it's interesting to know what what you're dealing with here. You're not dealing with just a small group of people. You're dealing with a large, very unruly group of people. Right. Yeah. So big, in fact, that some of the archaeological and historical debates about this book have to do with how and what you would expect to see from a group this big traveling around this land at the time. You know, I mean, you have a minimum of maybe two million people. And what is it going to look like for a group of two million to travel around and conquer land and camp and eat and all that? And whether or not we really see evidence of that. I agree. And, I, you know, on the one hand, I don't expect any evidence because they didn't build monuments. And so there's nothing to be left after 3,400 years. However, I do think one of the reasons for skepticism by those who don't accept the Bible at face value is it is not physically possible for 2 million people to survive in the desert for that long, barring supernatural aid, barring the manna from heaven. And so if you reject any supernatural events, you're gonna, you really are gonna have to reject the census and the numbers that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you reject the numbers, actually this is probably a relatively small group of people, then you have the hard time explaining the book of Joshua, why you do see signs of conflict go into the promised land, because how could a very small group of people do anything significant militarily? So I think caught in between a little bit of a dilemma. Yeah, that's the case in a lot of these uh, 
in a lot of these Torah books is it one is so far into the distant past that it's difficult to get the archaeology and uh, get the historical record right. But on the other side of things, it's very difficult sometimes to um, square the explanations to where you get to the point where actually the explanation is is less believable than what the text actually says. And so I think we're just better off to go with what the Bible actually says as being what happened. So uh, let's go over a little bit of the overview of the book and hit a few of the high points. Numbers like Exodus, like Genesis is one of those books that we don't have time to talk about all the high points. And when you get into this book, you realize there's more familiar scenes in here than you probably remember, more stories that you're familiar with than you might remember. Um, The book starts with the census, a little bit of a recap of the Levitical laws. And then you get to chapter six, which is the Nazarite vow, which, which is interesting because there are several Nazarites in scripture. So Samson is the is the most famous one. It's possible that Samuel early in his life was dedicated mm-hmm. to the Lord as a Nazarite. John the Baptist is dedicated as a Nazarite. And so this vow that we see here comes into play with several other characters. But the most famous and most important reason to cover chapter six is this blessing, this Aaron's blessing, the Aaronic blessing, which is nestled into the end of chapter six. And there's a lot of historical significance with this blessing. There really is. Uh, And you're referring to, I'll just read this to remind the listeners in chapter six, verse 22, the Yahweh spoke to Moses. We always say the Lord, but uh, in the text, just want to make it clear that this is the name of God. So Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and tell them, this is how you will bless the people of Israel. You will say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the reason I say Yahweh is because the next verse says this. God says, this is how they will put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And Mm -hmm. first, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful blessing. But probably the reason Uh, archaeologically that it's so well known is it is the oldest verse in the Bible that has ever been found written down. Uh, And I probably explain that. So there are old copies of the Bible. We've talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls from maybe 200 BC having, you know, being copies of the Old Testament. But the oldest written verse ever found is from the 6th century BC, so very old. And it's this verse on a little silver amulet that's been excavated. And so it's, I think that's pretty appropriate that the oldest verse that's ever been found is this blessing. And it likely shows the prominence even in that part of uh, Israelite history of this blessing for the people. Right. Yeah, this written, this version is, uh, you know, think about Moses coming into the promised land somewhere in the 14th century or 12th century BC. But basically, you're going to find this written on an ambulance uh, six to 700 years later. And so the enduring power of it and the importance of it in the, because it's not just a blessing, it's also a symbol of the relationship, the special relationship and the love of Yahweh towards his people, Israel. But it also has an interesting connection. I think you were talking to me about an interesting connection between that ironic blessing, what's called the blessing of Aaron, and the uh, lampstands in the tabernacle. 
because a, a piece of numbers is also devoted to describing this traveling temple, if you will. We call it a tabernacle or a tent, but it's really a traveling temple to God. Yeah, the, the tabernacle, I think, is one of the more misunderstood areas of the Bible just because it's so foreign to us. We It's it's hard to visualize unless you've seen a model of it, which I would encourage people. There are some YouTube videos out there uh, that, while they may be a little bit hokey, they offer a really good representation of what this would have actually looked like, down to the point where they have recreated some of these priestly garments and the wilderness tabernacle. If you'll just search that on YouTube, you can find a couple of good videos. And once you have it in your head, it's a lot easier to understand what's going on in these passages and what, what life would have looked like. And I think the key to understanding the tabernacle and the temple later as well is that the tabernacle is created as an image or representation of the Garden of Eden. And what we find out in the book of Hebrews is the temple itself later is a representation of a heavenly temple. So we see that the architecture mm -hmm. of, of the heavenly spaces is the vision that God gives for Moses and later Bezalel and Aholiab to create on earth. And so by implication, we can say the Garden of Eden, the Garden Temple of Eden is similar to the heavenly temple, and it's later similar to the earthly temple. So the things in the temple and in the in the tabernacle look like the things in the Garden of Eden. And the easiest place to see this is in chapter eight. At the beginning, he's describing the seven lamps. And this will sound familiar mostly to people who are thinking about the book of Revelation. You have the seven lamp stands. Right. Jesus is walking among the lampstands, the lampstands of the seven churches with the messengers. And uh, one of the reasons that they do this is because the lampstands look like trees. So when Jesus is walking among the lampstands in Revelation, he is there is a part of that vision that should remind us of the Lord walking in the midst of the Garden of Eden. In this paragraph as well, we should look at these lamps that have these branches as trees that look like the tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they are lining the outer part of the tabernacle outside of the Holy of Holies. Mm -hmm. And so you're in the midst of this place, which is the holy part, but it's not the holiest of holies. And it's a reminder of God's presence dwelling with his people. And Michael Morales has a great book called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? And in, in that book, one of the descriptions he gives of Leviticus and of the book of Numbers is the arrangement of the tabernacle portrayed the ideal of Israel basking in the light of the divine presence in the house of God, abiding in the fires of his glory. So life before the face of God would be the theme of the book of Numbers and the theme of the book of Leviticus. There are two sides uh -huh. of the same coin. The law side and the life side of living in this system of the rules that they got at Mount Sinai is all about God's presence among his people. How can God live among an unholy people? Well, he does it like he did in Eden. He does it like he does in the tabernacle. He does it like he does in the New Jerusalem. They're all pictures of the same phenomenon. And so what you have in chapter eight is a visual representation of the blessing in chapter six. So what, what does it look like for God to bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace? Well, one way it looks is these bright burning lampstands 
reflecting on you as you stand there in the midst of the holy place. So it's it, it, part of Israel's history is this physical and liturgical expression of the commands and the rituals that God has given to the community of Israel. So when you walk in there, you're not just thinking I'm doing my duty. You're thinking, oh, I'm connecting back with how things were created to be. We're being restored back into the presence of God. This is the reason, for example, you see um, you, you see cherubim sewn into the curtain on the temple is because mm-hmm. the cherubim is guarding the Garden of Eden, the presence of God. And when right. man humanity was sent out from the presence of God, it was guarded by the cherubim. And outside the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwells, they are also protected there by the cherubim. And so all of this is one continuous thread. The, the other thing, the last thing I'll mention is that the priests, when they talk about the priest garments in these opening chapters of Numbers, uh, in chapter three, for example, uh, they talk about the sons of Aaron and the duty of the Levites. And in verse seven, it says, they shall keep guard over him and over all the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister in the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting. They shall keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. This is the same word that's given in Genesis 2 for what Adam and Eve are supposed to be doing in the garden. So the Levites are kind of a new Adam and Eve tending to the things of God in the tabernacle, mm-hmm. just as Adam and Eve should have been guarding and keeping the garden when they were there. That's a great insight. If you think about uh, the more detail you get into, the more you see the similarity. But on a macro level, you see the Garden of Eden. And of course, sin causes the expulsion of humanity. But from the tabernacle to the temple that will be later built to the heavenly temple in Ezekiel, to the book of Revelation, to the new thing, God is signaling his end purpose in this. And I, I, and I think that's really a very insightful call because when you read it, you go, wow, it's just a lot of details about a tent and all the stuff that's in the tent. But once you realize this is God signaling his ultimate intention of redemption is to bring us back into his presence in the new Jerusalem, in the new Garden of Eden, then you see how early on that God begins to signal his redemptive purpose. And Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot more sense when you read about the tabernacle. And then later when you read about the temple. Yeah. One of the things that you have to remember is God's telling a complete story in the Bible. And through that story, there are certain ways God likes to do things. He has preferences for how he interacts with people. And those are pretty consistent through the whole Bible to the point that, um, even from Old Testament to New Testament, we see some of these recurring things about how to approach God, how to be with him. The fact that the temple is not abolished, the temple is relocated. So the temple is destroyed, but now our bodies are the temple of the Lord. Right. So he still meets with people in temples, kind of tongue in cheek, because we right. are now the temples. We are the vessels of the living God. The spirit comes and lives in us, dwells in us. We're the new holy of holies. Uh, our hearts. So there are ways that God does things that are consistent throughout scripture. And, and numbers is a great place to see that, whether it's the tabernacle setup, whether it's the rebellion of the people, whether it's the faithfulness of Moses and his intercession. There are a lot of themes that you see in this book that run through the rest of scripture. 
I agree. But, you know, here's the interesting thing. So you get through that first piece and you pull those lessons. And by the way, it does seem to go from narrative telling you about events, then back to laws or descriptions. For example, we started with a narrative taking the census as they came out of Egypt. And now we've just been talking about the layout of the tabernacle and the priestly blessing. Well, by chapter 13, you get back into some events. Mm -hmm. And this trip wasn't supposed to be 40 years. In other words, it doesn't take them very long to make this journey and get close to the promised land, get close to the modern uh, land of Israel. And so in chapter 13, they get close enough that the Lord tells Moses to send out some men to go look over the land of Israel that he has given them, this promised land. And you just preached this last weekend a great sermon about Caleb and his role in that. But at that point, theoretically, those 12 spies would go in and say, yes, this is an awesome land. Uh, yes, there are people there, but the Lord's given it to us and let's go. We're going to go conquer this land. But that's not what happens. Mm -hmm. And that sets the stage for the 40 years in the wilderness. So what happened? Well, the spies is a really interesting story that I think is is one of those that should be up there with a lot of these other Bible stories that are told at VBS and Children's Church mm -hmm. that kind of come alive the more you study them. You learn them as a kid, and then you study them as an adult, and you see that Caleb is one of the one of the most underrated biblical heroes, biblical characters. He is described as being wholeheartedly devoted to God, and his role in the spy story is that they send the twelve spies out. They, they survey the land. They say it's great. It's flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are so big that two guys have to carry them back. Uh, it's awesome land, but there are giants, sons of Anak, sons of the Nephilim. There's no way we can conquer it. And Caleb and Joshua say, God is giving us this land. We can conquer this land. But the people are totally scared, totally freaked out. They disobey God. And this, this is one of the things I had to point out in the sermon is, they weren't spying out the land to see if they could take the land. They were spying out the land to survey it, to see what they were about to take. And right. instead, the people say, I don't actually think we can take it. Because the reason they're punished with the 40 years of wandering is not the weakness of their army or the fact right. that they're going up against insurmountable odds. The, the reason that they're punished with the wandering is because they disobey and disbelieve God, which is a theme that runs through the entire Bible is we are called to obey and trust God's promises, no matter what those promises are, different times in history, different things, portions of the Bible. We are called to obey God and trust his promises. And the fundamental thing that they do not do when they're on the edge of the promised land is obey God and trust his promises. It's not just that they're scared. It's not just that they may not be able to win with their own strength. It's that they fundamentally don't trust what God said. That's really insightful because, again, and this is so applicable to us today, God didn't say to them and he didn't punish them for being afraid. God never said you aren't going to ever be afraid. He's just saying, take heart and obey. And so after the spies come back in chapter 13, here's what the people say when they heard the 10 of the 12 spies say, there's no way we can beat these guys. And so they said, if only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or even more, if we had died in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us into this land so that now we can die by the sword? 
they say, let us choose a leader and we'll actually turn around and go back to Egypt. Well, that's such a low point that God later in that chapter, verse 20, he says, none of the men, and this underscores what you've said, Cole, it doesn't say anything about their strength. Doesn't even say anything about them being a little intimidated. It says, none of the men who have seen my glory and have seen my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have not obeyed shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. In other words, it's the judgment is exactly what you said. They saw my power. They saw me bring them out of Egypt. They saw me provide the manna in the desert and they aren't willing to obey and none of them will enter the promised land. And so kicks off the 40 years uh, waiting for the next generation who might be faithful enough to enter the land. Mm -hmm. So they begin to wander and we get more laws, sacrifices. We get a few battles. We get some rebellions. Korah's rebellion is mentioned other places in the Bible. Uh, Aaron's staff buds, which is a very cool story because that ends up in the Ark of the Covenant later on. We get some laws of purification, and we a couple of the things I wanted to mention are in chapter 21, you get the story of the bronze serpent. And this is interesting because, number one, it's just a really interesting story. Jesus references this story in, in John chapter 3, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. And we still use this symbol for medical places where there's a, a staff with a serpent on it. And in fact, in Hezekiah's time, they actually have this serpent and they've come to call it Nehushtan at that point, And they destroy it because it's become kind of a cult God that they're offering sacrifices to. But the story originally here, it go ahead. starts as a sign of healing, right? Which is why it's the symbol of the medical profession. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a symbol of healing because they're being bitten by these fiery serpents. And anybody that looks up at this bronze snake on a pole will be healed. So this is the way God saved them. And so they do what's so common for people to do. They, they don't trust God. They trust in the sign of what God did. And they expect that to be the thing that will heal them later. And so we, we still honor it as a sign of healing today. But what they were doing at the time is they had started to worship the serpent instead of worshiping God. And so Hezekiah destroys the serpent. But what's interesting is in Timnah, which is a town not super close to where they are here, but from about this era in the 12th century, they found a copper serpent statue, like an idol from the 12th century <laughs> BC in Timnah, which, me, which, which just suggests to us that maybe th there was a worship of this kind of God at the time that maybe had sprung from this event, again, worshiping the sign rather than worshiping God. It's just one of those confirmations that this was pretty prevalent after this, that people were worshiping these snake gods. Uh-huh. Well, and the connection with the healing as odd as it seems to us with this serpent lifted up. But the point was that God healed them through this sign. And then when Jesus refers to it, he said, just as that serpent would lift it up, so I'll have to be lifted up. And obviously healing comes through what God is doing in Jesus, just like healing came through what God was doing through that, that sign. And I just think it's really interesting that Jesus does refer to this and says, it's going to be through me as I'm lifted up, 
literally the resurrection, or you think about him on the cross, and that sign is going to be a sign for healing of humanity. So it's really interesting, again, to see all the way back in Numbers, you see these forecasts of the gospel and Jesus, Mm -hmm. which we'll see again in a little bit. Yeah, one of the signs uh, that points to Jesus in this book, and this is also one of the most famous stories in the book of Numbers, is the story of Balaam and Balak. So Balak is a king, uh, and he calls Balaam, who is kind of like a pagan soothsayer sorcerer type. This is one of those stories in the Old Testament that you're like, I would love to know the backstory on this, what Balaam was up to before he enters the story. But we don't really know much about him. All we know is that Balak, who is a king, calls in Balaam to come and curse the people of God. So Balak realizes there's this giant group of people on his border. This is not going to be good. They have a strong army. His his kingdom may be in jeopardy. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go get the local soothsayer and I have him rain down curses on the people of Israel so that they won't be able to attack my kingdom. At least that's the way the plan goes. So he summons Balaam. Balaam comes. He doesn't really want to come. Uh, And this is where we get the story of Balaam's donkey. And uh, Balaam is not supposed to go. He saddles his donkey because of the price that Balak is going to pay him. And the donkey keeps stopping in the road. And so finally, Balaam gets off and beats the donkey. And the donkey can see the angel of the Lord standing in the middle of the road. This is in chapter 22 of Numbers. And it says, and when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn left or right. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled. And then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And the the part that I think is always funny about this story is that Balaam doesn't stop and say, oh, my donkey is talking to me. He just talks back. So Balaam says to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey says back to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. And then the Lord opens the eyes of Balaam and he sees the angel standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bows down and fell on his face. And then the angel talks to him and says, why have you struck your donkey? Anyway, this is a great story about God doing a miracle through this donkey and kind of a humorous moment. But the point of it is Balaam is humbled before the Lord before he gets to Balak so that he knows who's really in charge. And because of that, Balaam is not able to curse the people of Israel when Balak wants him to. Yeah, it's interesting in 23, Balaam has several oracles, several blessings, really. And he uh, builds uh, some altars. He tells Balak, build some altars and you know, sacrifice some bulls and rams. And Balak did that. And he steps back and he's waiting for this great curse to come down on the Israelites. And instead, in chapter 23, Balaam says, how can I curse a people that God has not cursed? How can I denounce people whom Yahweh has not denounced? He said, uh, basically, he blesses him. And so Balak says to him, what have you done? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. 
And Balaam answered and said, I must take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth. And so it doesn't go the way Balak thought it was going to go. And instead, Balaam sees the Lord and can only speak blessings on the people mm-hmm. of Israel. He actually repeats the cur- or the blessing of Abraham, which is in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, or the original promise to Abraham that God makes in chapter 24, verse 9. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you which cursed are those who curse you is what Balak wants him to be doing. So this plan is really backfiring. And uh, later we get to a really famous section of this, which is a messianic prophecy in 16. He says, this is the Oracle of Balaam, son of Baor, the Oracle of a man whose eyes opened the Oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the most high, who sees the visions of the almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivor cities. This is quoted again in Psalm 2. It's a rehashing of Genesis 49, the promise to the sons of Jacob and to Joseph that there will be dominion. And of course, we look ahead and we think of the prophecies in Isaiah, and we think of the fulfillment in Christ, that a scepter, a person who comes to reign, will come from this line and will triumph over the kings of the earth. But this is one of the first times you hear this prophecy, and it's from the mouth of a pagan, from not an Israelite, announcing what God is going to do through the nation of Israel. Yeah, probably the deepest theological question here is, did Balaam get paid for this job? And, And I think not. I'm pretty sure Balak was pretty unhappy with him. Yeah, Balak and Balaam uh, don't get along very well. He doesn't do what he was supposed to do. Although in the New Testament, the reception of Balaam is that he taught people uh, sexual immorality. And and we find out later he was killed by the sword when they come in and and take over the promised land. So there, there is a little bit more to the story that we don't get here. But the story that we do get in these chapters is that Balak is paying him to curse and he can only bless because God has right. shown him that he can only speak what God is going to reveal to him. And so I, I've always loved the story of Balaam and Balak because it's these, these two outsiders who are giving a voice to the word of God and to the destiny of the people of Israel in the promised land. The last story I'll mention, like you said, we get to 26. And after 26, there is a recap of the laws for another 10 chapters. We get a census of the new generation. And so you see that uh, the people of Israel have completely changed over. And the only people that are basically going to get to go into the promised land at this point are Joshua and Caleb. Those are the only two of that generation who get to go in. Even mm-hmm. Moses doesn't get to go in. And they now we're down to 600,000, 601,000 people. So we've replaced essentially the entire generation of people. But the other story that I think is really uh, a prominent story is the zeal of Phineas, which is in chapter 25. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, he's a priest and they're in the assembly and, and two people are essentially committing adultery and uh, Phineas rises up and pins these people to the ground. This is a huge men's Bible study story. Everybody loves the story of Phineas as a mighty man of God. <laughs> And he ends up leading the people of Israel after that as a as a priestly leader. But after chapter 26, we don't we don't get any of these prominent stories. Instead, we get the working out of several of these Levitical laws. 
and we bring the book of Numbers to a close right on the edge of the promised land where we get the story of Joshua picking up and we get the speeches of Deuteronomy picking up and Moses isn't able to go Mm -hmm. over, but he is able to bless the people and we get the closing of Moses' life and we get the new chapter of Israel in the promised land. It really is a book of transition. And one of the interesting things is uh, amidst all of the counting and the uh, laws, uh, some of the things we've tried to bring out here, you realize how the book of Numbers, if, if you just read it and pay attention to it, is advancing the redemptive story of God, whether it's the tabernacle, whether it's the faithlessness of the people, the faithfulness of of Caleb, and and that basic theme of obedience to God, the holiness of God, you know, we didn't talk about this, but all of those purity laws and all are meant to reflect the holiness of God, the set-apartness of God. The book of Numbers really does advance the story of God's redemption, and it it poses the age-old question, will we place our trust in God and will we obey or not? Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.